Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Reading from Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Abraham justified by faith. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. 
the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said of him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sin and was raised to life for our justification. Now, as we sit, let me encourage you to do two things, if you will. One uh, is to turn back in uh, Bibles to Romans chapter 4. If you are uh, a guest here, then you won't know that we've been looking through the book of Romans and uh, we've arrived at chapter 4 this evening, uh, page 1131. I think it will help you to have a Bible open in front of you as we go through. The other thing that might help you will be to grab hold of uh, this uh, sermon outline, uh, again, that was tucked inside your your bundle. And um, if you like that sort of thing, that will help you to know uh, where we're heading in the next few moments Uh, Well, with our Bible and that in hand, uh, let me pray for us now. Our Father, thank you very much for this baptism service, and uh, we thank you very much for the things we're learning uh, from the book of Romans. We pray now that we would learn more of uh, the wonderful truths um, of your word, uh, understanding more what it means uh, to be somebody who trusts in you and you alone, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look, this baptism is a sign of the most remarkable truth. Um, It speaks of the certainty that Christians have that when we die, we will spend all eternity with Jesus Christ. Now, please don't mishear this. Uh, That that certainty is not because we are good. Uh, Christians are not that. Uh, It's not because of anything we've done, not even because we've been baptised, but simply because Jesus Christ died for us and cleansed us from our sin. So now, in God's sight, we are acceptable to him. So the water of baptism is a brilliant sign of that, being cleansed from sin. Now, if you're a guest here tonight, perhaps uh, here to support Jordan and Lincoln and Harley and and Emma, uh, let me say again, thank you for coming. Uh, It's great you've come here this evening. And if coming to church is an unusual experience for you, I wouldn't be at all surprised if hearing, hearing what I've just said is a great surprise to you. Indeed, you may be sitting here thinking, I never knew that Christians believed that. Because that's not what most people believe that Christians believe. Uh, My children are here. They won't mind me telling you that uh, they come home from their um, uh, RS lessons. They used to be called RE lessons when I was a lad, but there we are. Times have moved on. They're religious studies lessons. And they are taught at school that Christians believe that good people go to heaven. 
that you have to be good to get to heaven. That is how you get to heaven as far as Christians are concerned. That's what's taught at school. But that's exactly not what the Bible teaches we're going to see this evening. Uh, Now, that's not entirely the teacher's fault. That's what the national curriculum tells them to teach. And it is the way most people think. I met with a delightful person recently to talk about the core truths of Christianity. And I explained that Christians believe that we are put right with God, not by our effort, not by our own performance, but purely through having faith in Jesus Christ. And this person said to me, I've never heard that before. And this person's been around churches all their life and they'd never heard it before. And so they were slightly wary, understandably. What, 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 what is this? A new idea that the vicar of Fullwood has got hold of? A novel thing that Christchurch Fullwood is teaching? Well, look, if you feel that way this evening, then you're in good company because some of the people that first read the book of Romans were suspicious of this teaching as well. Last week we read that we get right with God not through our effort, not through anything we do and not through keeping God's law or any religious actions like circumcision or even baptism. No, we get right with God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Look back to chapter 3 verse 28 if you will. Chapter 3 verse 28 is where we ended last week. We maintain that a man is justified, that is put right with God. We maintain that a man is justified by faith that is trusting in Jesus Christ, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. It's not keeping God's law that gets us right with God. And then look on to verse 30. There is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by that same faith. Do you see the point? It's not being circumcised or baptised or performing any religious ceremony that gets us right with God. It's purely through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when that was written by the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 3 there, some of the Christians who read this had been brought up as Jews, and they'd have been very suspicious of that, especially when he spelled it out the way he did to say it's not keeping the Old Testament law that makes you right with God, and it's not circumcision that makes you right with God. And so from those from a Jewish background would have found that very hard to take. That's what they'd been taught all their life. So you can imagine at this point in the letter, some people in the church in Rome saying, this is new. We've not heard this before. And that's why chapter four is written. So chapter four, verse one tells us, well, basically to look at Abraham. We're on the first point on the handout, if you're still following along. Look at Abraham. It's not new. That's verses one to eight. Abraham was the father of all the Jews. Every Jewish person, even now, can trace their ancestry back to Abraham. It all began with him. And the cherished belief among the Jews was that Abraham was justified by works, by keeping the law, by being circumcised. So chapter four, verse one. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? And the answer, verse three, Well, what does the scripture say? I love that. That should always be the Christian's response, isn't it? When asked a question, we should always respond with, what does the scripture say? And what does the scripture say about Abraham, verse three? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what it says in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 15 and verse six says exactly that. Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness 
righteousness. And you'll see as you read through that, that chapter, indeed as, as, uh, as it was being read for us just now, that phrase is repeated right through this chapter. It comes in verse 4, verse 5, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 22, and verse 23. And it is repeated to make the point, Abraham was declared righteous, that is made right with God, simply because he believed God, because he had faith in God. Abraham wasn't put right with God through anything he did. It wasn't because of his work, verse 4. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. When I was at 15, I had a job in the summer holidays filling plastic bottles with shampoo. I got paid by the amount of bottles I filled each day. At the end of the first week of filling thousands, really thousands of bottles of shampoo, the guy who owned the business handed me a brown envelope about this size with some money in it saying, here's a gift for you. Well, I was very excited because I knew he wasn't going to be paying me very much and I thought he's given me a gift. I presumed he'd given me a bonus, something beyond the agreed amount for the work I'd done. I thought he was so impressed with the way that I'd knuckled down and worked hard and turned up on time and got on with the job that he'd given me more than we'd agreed, a gift. And I opened it. And when I opened it, there was no gift inside. It was just my wages. It was just the amount he owed me for doing the job I'd done no gift just what I deserved that's what Paul writes in verse 4 when a man works his wages are not credited to him as a gift they're given as an obligation it's what you deserve see if you work for something you're paid for it that's not a gift that's your wages however verse 5 to the man who does not work but trusts God as Abraham did who trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Do you see the point he's making? Abraham was given righteousness as a gift. He didn't work for it at all. And that's what God does for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. He gives you a gift. He puts your account in credit. Think in terms of a bank statement. I've got one of my bank statements here. A bit depressing. Um, if, um, if we were to get a, a bank statement from Heaven's Bank, it would look a lot worse than this one. We are in debt to God, up to our necks in debt. That's what we've been reading in the first three chapters of Romans. Sorry if you've not been here, you'll just have to take my word for it until you can go home and read it for yourself. Before God, our bank statement is covered in large red numbers. You know, Maybe you don't get bank statements, but when you get a bank statement in red, it means that you owe a lot of, well, and if it's got lots of noughts over it, you owe a lot of money. That's what it would look like if we had a bank statement from God. Numbers so big, we could never dream of ever paying it off. That's what we've seen over these last weeks. But gloriously, that's not the end of the story. That situation can be changed. You won't believe what I'm about to say, but it is true. Caroline and I got a bank statement a couple of months ago and we had £100,000 more in our account than we should have had. We couldn't believe it. We started to spend it in our minds. No, we didn't. We knew we didn't have that amount of money in our account. To cut a long story short, it was a bank error. It was a bit like Monopoly, you know, bank error in your favour. But it wasn't £100, it was £100,000. And we pointed it out to them and they rectified it. So there we are, we're back to normal. 
But what we're told here is that when we have faith in Jesus Christ, God puts our account in credit. He doesn't just wipe the slate clean, but he credits to our account a sum so large that we will never have to work again. That's what happened to Abraham. Verse three, Abraham believed God. That's all he did. And it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a bank statement with lots of noughts after it saying you are in the right with God. Everything's okay. You don't have to do a scrap of work. His account before God says he's right with God. He didn't have to work for it. He simply trusted God. And this is written about Abraham to demonstrate that this is not some newfangled teaching. No, this is how it all began way back in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And to underline the point, to see that it wasn't just true for Abraham, we read in verse 6 that it was David's experience too. This David is great King David, the greatest king the Jews ever had. And in verses 6 to 8, we read this. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. See, he said David knew God's forgiveness as well. Not because he worked for it, just the same. Not because he earned it. Not because he deserved it. It was just credited to him. Given to him as a gift. Because he trusted God. So do you see what the Apostle Paul is doing when he's writing this? In turning to Abraham, the very first of the Jews, and then turning to David, uh, the great King David of the Jews, he's saying to all the Jews who have been saying, are you sure you've got this right? He's saying, this is not a new thing. It's not some newfangled idea. This is how it's always been with God. Now look, this is crucial to have clear because most people believe they'll get to heaven because they've been good or because they've done religious things. Uh, tonight is not the only baptism that has taken place this week. The, the future king of England, Prince George, was, was baptised on Wednesday. Now, some of you will love that sort of thing, and some of you will be, won't, won't at all. But don't switch off. At his baptism, was dis, uh, 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 it, just before his baptism, it was all discussed by the media, as you know. And the radio was on while I was taking a shower and I heard someone on the radio say that the prince's baptism was a necessary right to ensure the prince would go to heaven. You see, everybody, don't believe that at all. Baptism is quite the opposite. Jordan and Lincoln and Harley and Emma haven't been baptised today to get them to heaven. The water of baptism is a symbol, a sign, a visual aid, you like, if you like, of what has already happened to them. They have simply put their faith in Christ they've trusted Jesus that's it they've trusted Jesus death on the cross to put them right with God and so in God's sight they are clean and that's what this is a picture of now to underline that secondly uh, the second point on the handout and over the page now Paul says look at Abraham justification that is how we get right with God justification is not through circumcision or law keeping that's verses 9 to 15 Look at verse nine. Is this blessedness, that is, that you can be right with God just by trusting God, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Now that question is crucial. And to answer that question, we must again turn to the Bible. 
As we've already said, it was in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham was declared righteous. But it's not until Genesis chapter 17, 14 years later, that Abraham was circumcised. So let's read verse 10 again. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. You see the point? He's just ramming it home. Abraham was declared right with God before he was circumcised. So circumcision didn't make Abraham right with God. And so we read halfway through verse 11. So then, he, Abraham, is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised. Now that is utterly remarkable, especially as you read on. He is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. Why was there this long delay, 14 years between Abraham being declared righteous and then him being circumcised? Why such a long gap? Had he just never got around to it? Had Abraham avoided being circumcised? I couldn't blame him for that. Did God fail to bring it to Abraham's notice and God suddenly said, oh, forgot, you should have been circumcised. Oh, we better have it done now, 14 years late. Is that what? No, verse 11. It was quite deliberate. The 14-year gap is deliberate. In the providential purpose of God, there was meant to be a delay in order to demonstrate, verse 11, that Abraham would be the father of all, even the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, to make this very point that it's not about circumcision. It was quite, I've never seen that verse before, so I've got quite excited about it this week, in case you hadn't noticed. It was quite deliberate and in the plan and providence of God that Abraham was declared righteous before circumcision. It was planned that way so that everyone would be able to see that we are not made right with God through any religious actions or ceremonies. Fantastic. So verse 11, Abraham is the father of the Gentile Christian and verse 12, he's the father of Jews who become Christians as well because we are not put right with God through circumcision but by putting our faith in the promises of God. And if we haven't got the point already, to ram the point home, if anyone still wants to suggest that we are put right with God through the things that we do, we read verse 13. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Again, it's not through keeping God's law that we're made right with God, but most people think it is. Sometimes I ask people this question, if you were to die tonight and God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? They say things like this. Sometimes they go down the moral route. Why should God let you into heaven? They say, uh, because I've been good enough. Uh, Because uh, I don't steal. Or um, I don't lie. Or I give to charity. Or I've not been a murderer. Or or, or a rapist. Sometimes they go down the moral route. Why should God let you into heaven? Because I'm a good person. I've kept God's law, they say. Sometimes they go down the kind of religious route. I go to church. I don't just go to any church. I'm a member of the C of E. Well, God's going to be particularly impressed by that. Um, I've been baptised, they say. Or um, I've been confirmed. Or I I go to communion. 
golly, they really do stacking up. I read the Bible and I pray. At one time I asked somebody this question, uh, if you were to die tonight, why should uh, God let you into heaven? What would you say? He said, my grandfather used to ring the church bells. <laughs> and my brother's also a minister and he asked that question one time and they answered, because I watch songs of praise. Those are real answers that people have given me. But look, these are all good things. Well, I'm not sure watching songs of praise are a very good thing, but that's by the by. Sorry about that, anybody who works for the BBC. But none of these things get us right with God. When it comes to being right with God, being moral or being religious is useless. It won't work. Now, I've got to tell you that discovering that 30 years ago was a great shock to me. But that's what we're reading here. And the reason none of these things make us right with God is because no matter how hard we try, we don't keep God's law. Look back to chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that's what we've seen in the first three chapters of Romans. When it comes to God's law, we all fall at the first hurdle. We don't don't keep the first commandment. We put other things before God. We make other things first in our lives. And so to sum up where we've got to, and we are getting close to the end here, three times in this chapter we read that being right with God is apart from works. Twice we read it's apart from circumcision. Three times it says that it's apart from keeping the law. And listen, nine times we read that being right with God comes through faith, through trusting the promises of God in Jesus Christ. And this is very good news. This is great news to tell people. This means that anyone can be saved. Anyone can be put right with God. This makes it possible for the ungodly person to be saved. If all that is required is for me to hold out my empty hands and receive from God the benefits of Jesus' death, then even the most ungodly can be put right with God. Isn't that great news? Now, the Apostle Paul who wrote this, he knew that. He had tried to murder Christians. He hated Jesus. He was thoroughly wicked, yet he had been saved. Empty hands. Jesus' ministry reflected this. He reached out to the most dodgy characters in society. He spent time with, do you remember the phrase? Tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes and road traders. And they became his followers because it isn't about living up to a standard. They just came with empty hands. Got nothing to offer you. Think of the thief on the cross. He had no time to earn his salvation. Minutes from death, he put his trust in Jesus and Jesus promised him that he would go straight to paradise. He didn't have anything to do. He couldn't do anything, could he? He couldn't earn his salvation. Couldn't get baptized. Couldn't get down off the cross. Couldn't do anything good. He was a thief. The principle of being made right with God by faith in Jesus, makes it possible for anyone to be saved. It makes it possible for the ungodly to be saved. It makes it possible for the unreligious person to be saved. People often say to me, I'm not religious. I don't like organised religion. Knowing this, I can reply, you're not asked to be religious, but to trust God. See, being put right with God is not the privilege of the person who has God's law or who's been circumcised. If it were, then we'd have all first had to have kept God's law and been circumcised or baptised before we could be counted as one of God's children. It's not necessary. 
That's why when someone puts their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, we don't insist on any religious ceremony being performed before they are considered a full member of God's family here. From the moment you trust Jesus, you're a full member of the family. Just like having a baby, isn't it? You know, you don't suddenly think, oh, well, you know, the baby's coming to the family, but, you know, until they do a load of good stuff, we're not really going to count them as part of the family. No, they're part of the family straight away. They take over the family, for goodness sake. We don't insist that anybody is confirmed, which is a man-made religious ceremony. We don't insist that anybody is confirmed before allowing them to the Lord's table because we're not made acceptable to God through our religious observance. We're declared righteous by our faith in Jesus Christ, full stop. If you're a guest here and not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, let me say thank you for coming and you're welcome. And let me ask you if you can see how wonderful this is. It means that you could be a follower of Jesus Christ tonight. You could go home tonight and be absolutely sure you are right with God. And that means that if you die, when you die, and when you meet him one day, even though your account is in the red, even though you owe him big time, he will wipe the debt clean and credit your account so that you will never have to work again. Isn't that wonderful? Let me ask you, uh, Christian here, do you believe that? Yes, Christian, do you believe that? Not just do you believe it intellectually, but do you believe it so that it affects your life? I find too many Christians who actually don't believe this in their Christian life every day. I think of a girl in her early 20s, Kirsty is her name. Well, she's not in her early 20s now because this was a long time ago. Kirsty came to me looking very sad and downcast and she said to me, I can't come to God in prayer because I've not lived the way I should have lived. Now, I knew her, she was a Christian girl. And because I knew her well, I rather provoc- provocatively said to her, oh, so when did the gospel change, Kirsty? See, she knew that the good news of the Christian gospel, so I asked her, how can anyone come to God? How can, how can you come to God? Through your effort? Because you've lived up to a certain mark? Because you've gone to church and been baptised? Is that it? Of course, she knew that it wasn't. So I said to her, so Kirsty, why do you think you can't come to God in prayer now? The Christian life goes on the way it started. John Chapman, the Australian evangelist who died last year, used to say this, we come by the cross, we live by the cross, and we die by the cross. He said most Christians know that we come to God through the cross. That's how we start the Christian life. And most real Christians know that we die by the cross, that when we stand before God, the only thing that will make the difference is our faith in the death of Jesus Christ. We come by the cross, we die by the cross. But those of Christians forget that we live by the cross as well. Christian, you are not acceptable to God because you've been to church and read your Bible and told your friends about Jesus and tried hard to live for him. And You're acceptable to God by faith. And we are to keep trusting Jesus even when we've blown it. And you'll have blown it. Big or little, this week, you'll have blown it. But if you're trusting Jesus, you're acceptable. And Abraham is a great example to us of that. And very, very briefly, finally, point three then, Abraham, look at Abraham, an example of faith, verses 16 to 25, and this really is very brief. Uh, When we were talking about this on Wednesday, it was Joe that pointed this out to me. Abraham is a brilliant example for us because he's such a bad example, if you know what I mean. Again and again, he got it wrong. But again and again, he just trusted God. 
And in verses 16 to 22, we're reminded of the story of Abram. Genesis chapter 15 begins by telling us that Abram had no children, and so he had no heirs. Abram was 99 years old. His wife, Sarai, was 90. No children. And God took Abram out on a clear night and he looked up at the sky and he said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall your offspring be. But I'm 99 and my wife's 90. No, he didn't say that. We read this. Abram believed the Lord and he credited him as righteousness. And why did Abram believe God? Where did he get his faith from? Look at the end of verse 17. I love this verse. Abram believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. That tells us where Abram got his faith from. Abram's faith was reasoned. It was considered. It was thought out. He reasoned as he looked up at the stars in the sky that the creator of all things, the one who made all the stars in the sky, the one who brought life out of nothing, he reasoned that if God could do all that, he could bring life out of his dead body. So look what we read in verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised This is why it was credited him as righteousness. Sometimes people say to me, I wish I had your faith. Actually, I'm really pleased people don't have my faith. It's rubbish. But they say it to me as if I've managed to muster up faith from in myself, as if I have something that they can't find. It's not it at all. Faith doesn't come from kind of trying hard. Faith comes from trusting in the evidence. Abraham reasoned that if God created everything from nothing then he could bring life out of Sarah's dead womb and so Abram is the model for us he believed that God would bring life out of a dead womb and we believe that God can bring life from a tomb verse 23 the words it was credited to him were written not only for him alone but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead That's the basis of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And when you look into the evidence for that, you see the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the most reasonable explanation for an empty tomb. Faith is simply trusting the evidence and reasoning that that, that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise you from the dead too. You think that's possible. He raised Jesus from the dead. He can do the same for me. There's good evidence for Jesus being raised from the dead. I believe he can do it for me. And then faith is trusting that he will. That God will not view you as a sinner in his debt, but as a forgiven person credited with righteousness. And because God is absolutely trustworthy, you can be absolutely certain of life beyond the grave. Because it's not dependent on how you live, but on what he has done for you. That's what this baptism service has been all about. And that is the most wonderful message that anyone can ever hear. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we thank you very much indeed that you have shown us very clearly in your word, the Bible, that uh, being right with you is not about what we do, but simply through us trusting in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that hundreds of us know that. Uh, Thank you that those who've been baptised this evening know that. And we do pray for others here who don't yet know that, to know it for themselves, that they too can be absolutely certain that they're right with you and going to spend all eternity with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.